You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. Turkey is facing internal and external threats, including the aftermath of a July 2016 coup attempt and the destabilizing effect of the Syrian war. At the same time, Turkey's domestic politics are becoming increasingly authoritarian with narrowing space for political opposition, free media, and civil society. With distrust growing on both sides, Turkey is near an all-time low in its relations with the West. On February 6th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation and the Middle East Initiative at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs hosted a talk called Turkey's Democratic Backsliding, the U.S. and EU Response, featuring Ash Center Democracy in Hard Places fellow Dr. Amanda Sloat, Jonas Bergen-Draga, a postdoctoral research fellow at the Middle East Initiative, moderated. My name is Jonas Bergen-Draga. I'm a, I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Middle East Initiative here at the, the Kennedy School. Um, and we're really lucky to have one of our uh, fellows at the, the Ash Center and also a fellow at the Brookings Institution, uh, Dr. Amanda Sloat, to talk about uh, Turkey and um, Turkey's democra- uh, democratic backsliding in recent years. Um, she is, in addition to her interesting insights on, on Turkey and on the region, both Southern European, Eastern Europe region and, and the Middle East, she is uh, really an, an excellent example of a combination of, of academic work and using the academic insights together with, with the, the, the kind of the quick-paced policy recommendations that you need in Washington. And she's currently combining those. She did that in, in Washington when she was working at, at different levels in government until uh, 2016. And now she's working more in the think tank world. And we're excited to hear what she has to say about Turkey. Please. Great. I thank you, everybody, for coming out. Um, it's amazing to see so many people here. It sort of smells like being at a Chinese restaurant. Um, <laughs> so it makes for an interesting setting to, uh, to, to talk about uh, Turkey. Um, so as uh, Jonas said, I had served in the uh, Obama administration for five years. Uh, three years I spent uh, as a deputy assistant secretary in the State Department managing southern Europe, which was Turkey, Greece, and Cyprus, and eastern Med, uh, which was code for coordinating with my Middle East colleagues on all of the Middle East issues that we were engaging on with the Europeans. Um, and I left government uh, six weeks before the, the coup in, in Turkey. Uh, so Jonas was asking me if that was intentional, if I had some sort of insight, but I, I can assure you it was it was entirely coincidental. Uh, and as I tell my colleagues, everything was totally fine while, while I was still there, and it, it all fell apart after, after I left. Um, so what I wanted to talk about today was um, essentially since I've been out of government, watching a lot of policy debates that are happening in, in Washington, similar debates happening in, in Brussels, Berlin, other capitals in Europe, uh, about how to engage with, with Turkey and what sort of relationship we should be having with, with Turkey. Uh, certainly there were a lot of high expectations both in the U.S. and the EU when, when Erdogan, when the AKP first came into to power in 2002, uh, some promising early reforms. Uh, the EU started accession conversations with, with Turkey. 
Uh, it was President Obama's first bilateral visit in 2009 after he came to office. So a lot of initial promise and a lot of initial high expectations for, for Turkey. Uh, and I think what we've seen in the last couple of years has, has certainly been some, some disappointment uh, and some increasing frustration with what we uh, called in, in government uh, a, a very challenging partner uh, that, we were, that we were dealing with. My central argument is that what makes Turkey such a challenging policy conundrum is this juxtaposition between some of the very real challenges it's facing uh, and an increasingly problematic leadership that we have to deal with. Uh, in terms of the, the challenges, and I'll talk about these uh, a little bit more, is this, there's some legitimate concerns stemming from political instability in terms of the domestic situation. Uh, the coup attempt, which I actually talked about uh, here in this very room uh, a little over uh, a year ago, uh, was a very traumatic event in, in Turkey. And I think it's not something that's actually sufficiently recognized in the United States or in the West, uh, just how traumatic that event was for the, the people of Turkey, for the, the government of, of Turkey. Uh, and certainly if you think about the scale of something like that happening in the United States, there, there would be an understandable policy response in terms of rooting out the, the plotters who were responsible. Uh, there's also security challenges that have been created by the, the PKK, uh, which of course is a designated terrorist organization in Turkey by the United States and, and the European Union, uh, continuing to wage a domestic insurgency against the, the Turkish government with, with thousands of, of Turkish citizens dead as a result of that conflict. Uh, and the affiliation between the PKK and the YPG, which of course has been the principal partner that the U.S. government has been backing in Syria in the fight against uh, ISIS, uh, as well as the general instability that comes from its location in a very difficult neighborhood with conflicts in Iraq and Syria, uh, as well as the, the three million refugees that are, are currently in, in Turkey as a result of those conflicts. So on one hand, you've got very legitimate challenges that Turkey is dealing with, both domestically and regionally. Uh, at the same time, you have a leadership that is becoming increasingly authoritarian. Uh, you have limited space for opposition parties, for civil society, for free media. Uh, you have an excessive response to the coup in terms of very deep purges of people in uh, government and, and uh, organizations across Turkey. Uh, you also have some questionable foreign policy choices by the government, uh, such as what looks like the purchase of S-400 missiles from, from Russia. Uh, and you also have very negative anti-Western rhetoric coming out of, of Ankara, directed at uh, the European Union, uh, as well as the United States. Uh, and I think those factors end up overshadowing, at least in policymakers' minds, uh, a lot of the very legitimate concerns that Turkey is dealing with domestically. And I think it's, it's making the policy space very complicated for Western countries to try and work out how to respond to these very legitimate problems when the rhetoric that they're dealing with is so negative and that the domestic situation is, is so negative. Uh, so to talk briefly on, on some of the, the domestic challenges like I had, had mentioned, um, the, the coup attempt uh, obviously was, was a very significant event, uh, and a lot of the steps that the Turkish government was taking uh, purportedly to stabilize the democracy arguably are actually threatening the, the democratic institutions instead. Uh, and if you look at the, the numbers coming out of the coup, they're, they're pretty extraordinary. Uh, within a week of the coup, 58,000 people were affected. 
reports of, of what the numbers are now, you've got 151,000 public servants and academics that have been dismissed, over 131,000 detained, 63,000 uh, arrested, government shut down over 3,000 schools and universities, dismissed almost 6,000 academics, uh, almost 4,500 judges and prosecutors, etc. So all of this obviously very destabilizing to a lot of public and political institutions across Turkey, uh, affecting the very real livelihoods of a lot of people who, who now have lost their, their jobs and don't necessarily have very effective recourse to, to get those back. Uh, the crackdown has also created an atmosphere of, of paranoia in, in Turkish society. Uh, the government has declared a state of emergency uh, immediately after the coup attempt, and that state of emergency is, is still in place. It's been repeatedly extended in, in three-month intervals with the most recent extension in January. Um, among the provisions of this that have been particularly problematic is that people are able to be held in pretrial detention uh, for 30 days without charge. Uh, so this has had a very chilling effect on, on public opposition, people's willingness to, to protest. Uh, the government also has a very elastic definition of, of what constitutes terrorism. Uh, so the Gulenist organization was designated a terrorist organization, obviously lots of concerns about what's <coughs> happening um, on the Kurdish front, but what's been particularly problematic is actions that could be perfectly acceptable today uh, become designated as terrorist activities next week, and then there's retroactive consequences for what you might have done today that was totally fine and now in the future is, is, is deemed as a, a terrorist activity. Uh, and then there's also been very systematic dismantling of, of rule of law and a lot of governing through these, these emergency decrees that the, the government is coming out with. Uh, notably, Freedom House came out with their uh, annual uh, freedom report a, a couple weeks ago, and Turkey was designated as not free. Uh, and this is actually the first time since the reporting series began in 1999 that, that Turkey has had this, this designation. Domestic politics, I think, are unlikely to improve in, in the near future. Uh, the other big marker event that we had in Turkey was the constitutional referendum last April, uh, which passed very, very narrowly, uh, depending on whether or not you believe um, some fraud allegations and, and how much that may have, have played into the, the final results. Uh, even if you accept that the results were completely legitimate, you had about 51% that, that voted in support. So if nothing else, it shows that you've got very deep polarization within Turkish society. Uh, and Erdogan is legitimately popular among a large segment of, of Turkish society. Uh, so you really have a, a battle for the, the future of, of Turkey's soul going on within the country in, in terms of, of how people are looking at, at where things are going forward. Uh, so the referendum changes will fully go into effect after presidential and parliamentary elections, which are scheduled for some point before November 2019. Uh, lots of debate within the analyst community about whether or not Erdogan is going to call for early elections. Uh, but I think one thing we're going to see coming out of this is that a lot of Turkey's foreign policy is going to continue to be dictated by its domestic concerns, and especially the need to rally the voter base and especially the nationalist base in advance of these elections. And so I think that's going to be a driver of a lot of this nationalist rhetoric that we are seeing um, directed at European countries, at American countries, uh, and also I think is, is part of the explanation uh, for why we're seeing some of the Turkish military operations in, in Afrin right now. Uh, we certainly have a, a lot of uh, a war support in, in Turkey right now, a lot of, a lot of support for the, the mission that's, that's happening uh, there in, in Syria. Um, 
Syria and the PKK and the YPG is a whole separate set of issues, which I am happy to talk about, but we'll, we'll leave that aside for, for right now, um, but can come back to that in, in questions. Um, so last part of my, my remarks, we'll talk about what do I see as the main policy options going forward. Uh, and I've got these broadly categorized into to three categories with the caveat that reality is, is never as, as neat as we like to, to, to put it in terms of analytical characterization. Uh, but if you look at the debates both in, in Europe and Washington, I think there's, there's three main approaches that people are looking at. The first approach is, is what I would characterize as the abandonment approach. It's this idea that Turkey is no longer a reliable ally, it's not a good ally, and, and we need to look at stop pretending that it is and, and stop working with it. Uh, the most extreme version of this is this idea of kicking Turkey out of NATO. Uh, leaving aside, there's actually no provisions to do that. It's unclear what the criteria would need to be to do that, what the mechanisms are. Uh, we've got other countries in NATO that also have some challenging domestic situations at the moment, but there is a school of thought that, that perhaps we should, we should remove Turkey from, from NATO. Uh, the softer version of this is, is questions about whether you curtail Turkey's EU accession aspirations. Uh, I think in practical terms, everybody recognizes that those aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Turkey is not well positioned to join the EU uh, anytime soon. Uh, so whether we should, we should stop uh, pretending that there is a, a process and, and just end that. Uh, my argument is that both of these, these approaches are problematic. Uh, I think there is a real risk to the West turning away from Turkey, uh, and if the West turns away from Turkey, the only people that benefit are those who do not want Turkey ultimately facing West, uh, and I would put Russia very highly in, in that category. Uh, I think Russia currently is benefiting from this rift between the West and Turkey right now. You're seeing this a lot in Syria. You're seeing this with the discussions about the S-400s. Uh, and countries need allies, and if the West decides they're not willing to invest in what is a challenging relationship with Turkey, but I think an important one. Uh, Turkey is going to increasingly be forced to, to look for, for allies elsewhere, uh, and I don't think that's, that's ultimately beneficial um, for, for the West or for Turkey. Uh, and on the question of, of the EU, I, I personally think it's at least useful to preserve the process. Uh, there's no political or economic cost to continuing the process, uh, but there definitely would be a political cost to ending it. Uh, not least is because you would give uh, Erdogan uh, an opportunity to say to his people, look, you know, Europe never wanted us anyway, now they're ending the process, uh, so there's political utility to him in, in Europe being the first to, to back away, and, and I don't think that's, that's advantageous to the, the West. The second school of thought is, is what I would call transactionalism, uh, and this is a term that has appeared a lot in think tank reports in, in Washington, especially over the last year. Uh, which is saying, you know, let's, let's take a very realist approach to this. Let's recognize that we don't necessarily have a lot of sway on Turkey's politics. Uh, we do have security interests in our relationship with them, and let's focus on a much more transactional approach of trying to get from Turkey uh, what it is we need without uh, dealing with, with a lot of these uh, broader um, concerns that we have. I, and certainly the West has a lot of pressing interests with Turkey right now. Uh, the EU in particular has concerns on the refugee front. Uh, both the US and the EU have interests in dealing with Turkey on, on counterterrorism. Uh, there's economic interests, especially given the volume of, of EU trade and, and investment in Turkey. Uh, and then there's also other long-term um, regional challenges that, that, that matter as well. 
to a certain extent, you could argue that this approach is already happening for practical reasons. If you look at the EU-Turkey refugee deal, uh, in a way it was essentially a transactional arrangement. Uh, if you want to be very cynical about it, it was the EU paying Turkey to, to keep the refugees in Turkey. Uh, and it was Turkey trying to get as much out of the EU as it could in terms of getting additional measures on visa liberalization, on, on EU accession. Both sides are relatively keeping their, their end of the bargain, at least in terms of the practical measures, but some of these bigger, more aspirational things aren't, aren't really happening. My concern with the transactional approach is I don't think that the West should be giving up on its arguments on rule of law um, or human rights concerns. Uh, I think there is a limited amount of leverage that we have, and I think we need to have some humility and realism about necessarily going in with a strong democracy promotion uh, approach, uh, and I don't think we necessarily have a lot of sway on, on Turkey's domestic politics at the moment. Uh, that said, I think there is an argument for us sticking up for our values uh, and continuing to reiterate our concerns on, on these issues. Uh, I also don't think that we are ever going to play the transactional game as well as, as Erdogan does. We're, we're simply not going to, to win. Uh, and if you look at what's happening in terms of the, the visa dispute between the U.S. and Turkey, and if you also look at what's happening in terms of this, this perceived hostage diplomacy where you have a lot of American and Europeans uh, in prison, and you have Erdogan saying very explicitly that he was looking to trade uh, one cleric for another, uh, which was this American cleric, Andrew Brunson, who was in prison. We got Fethullah Gulen, who's... who's uh, wanted by the Turkish government uh, as, as being blamed for being responsible for the coup, he has said very explicitly that he is willing to, to, to trade these, these two. Uh, there is no evidence that the American pastor who's in prison has engaged in any wrongdoing, uh, and it's, it's not a good place for the U.S. to, to be in in, in terms of, of making these trades. Uh, arguably, whatever Mike Flynn may or may not have been doing, uh, you know, Rudy Giuliani and others who were, were representing um, American interests in, in these cases, I think, have mistakenly given the, the impression that perhaps the U.S. government is willing to engage in, in more of these trades than, than uh, I necessarily think is, is helpful, uh, and, and thus far nothing actually has, has happened, and, and we have held firm to, to rule of law here in, in our own country. Uh, so final point is is my preferred way forward is is what I term the engagement approach. Uh, and you could you know expand it by 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 describing it as a constructive and and principled engagement. Uh, and I would frame that around a couple of of principles. One, I think there's limits to relationships that are rooted primarily in security cooperation. Uh, and unfortunately, I think the conflict in Syria has made U.S.-Turkey relations in recent years very focused on security, on counterterrorism, and it's all been seen through the lens of, of Syria. And that's tended to crowd out a lot of other important issues on the bilateral relationship, uh, and that's, that's problematic. Uh, I think those who argue against the idea of, of engagement tend to overlook the amount of connections that we currently have between our countries on the social side, economic, cultural, uh, political, uh, through trade, tourism, immigration, and, and other things. A uh, third principle is that relations are ultimately between countries and, and not necessarily between leaders. Uh, certainly leaders tend to personify a lot of the diplomacy between countries, uh, but this is also why I started with this distinction between the threats that the country is facing uh, and some of the problematic behavior by the leadership. And I think we need to remember this connection between countries, between peoples, uh, and, and not lose sight of that given some of the, the negative rhetoric that's, that's coming out of the, the leadership. Uh, I also think we need to take the long view in terms of our relationship with, with Turkey. 
Uh, unfortunately, I think the next year, year and a half, two years is going to be very difficult because we are in this pre-election period in, in Turkey, and I think foreign policy decisions, rhetorical comments are going to be made with an eye towards domestic politics, but they're unfortunately going to have some foreign policy uh, ramifications. I think in the long term, Turkey is NATO's second largest uh, military. It's very strategically located geographically, uh, and there's plenty of good reasons for us to continue investing in a long-term trajectory in the country, uh, not least because it's not in our advantage for Turkey to be turning in other directions to develop partnerships uh, elsewhere. So what does this mean? Uh, I think as a starting point, there needs to be recognition from the West about Turkey's legitimate security interests. Uh, I think there's not great understanding outside of Turkey about the Gulen movement and, and the role that that has played in Turkish politics. I think that's an area that, that people could look at more. Uh, on the Syria front, I think there needs to be a, a, a broader resolution of the Kurdish question uh, more generally. Uh, the U.S. has been fudging some things militarily in terms of, of cooperation with the YPG and, and dealing with Turkey's security concerns. Uh, but ultimately, the only way you're going to solve this problem more holistically is to get the Turkish government back to peace talks with the PKK and find a way to resolve the PKK issue, which is then going to have larger ramifications um, regionally. Uh, second, I think there needs to be recognition within the U.S. and the European Union of this multifaceted nature of our relationship. We need to widen the aperture beyond a focus simply on security issues to also take into account the broader range of interests that we have with Turkey across a number of sectors and also try to engage uh, much more broadly rather than just at, at leader-to-leader level. Uh, there's an argument that some of these, these summits end up providing a very high-profile uh, platform for the, the Turkish president to be able to, to, to make comments that don't necessarily resonate uh, as well internationally. You know, I think you saw this play out most recently with, with Erdogan's visit to, to Athens, uh, which the Greek government seemed to want to have as an opportunity to try and restore and renew relations uh, and ended up turning into a, a platform for some, some nationalist rhetoric that, that played well back home, but, but not so much in, in Europe. If you look at the American, the European, and the Turkish bureaucracies, there has been an effort at a bureaucratic level to try and do this and to try and maintain cooperation and, and find areas where, where you, can, you can engage. Uh, the U.S. government, both when I was there and afterwards, had senior official level meetings on things like the Balkans, which is a place where we have a lot of shared interests, uh, on energy cooperation. Uh, the EU Commission is, is also doing this. They had a series of meetings in December alone looking at counterterrorism, looking at transportation, looking at economic issues. Uh, the German government did this in December, having high-level meetings of officials looking at security measures, looking at the PKK, looking at areas that they could cooperate there. Those are the types of things that I need to that need to continue to develop that connective tissue at at multiple levels between the the governments. Um, another strand of this approach is is economic, and the economic piece is I think the only place that we actually have real leverage with with Turkey, uh, and it's mostly economic leverage that comes from the EU, which just has much larger trade and investment than than the United States does. Uh, there's been a lot of debate within the European Union about whether or not to go forward with upgrading the customs union with, with Turkey. Uh, to me, this seems like a sensible way of going forward because it's the best case that we have of actually putting Turkey into a legally-based framework uh, that deals with governance issues within this economic framework. Uh, there's been a lot of resistance to this in, in Europe over the last couple of months, especially from the German government given the deterioration of relations between Turkey and, and the EU. 
Uh, again, I would make the case that rather than having Europe preemptively decide that this is a reward they don't want to give, call Turkey's bluff and see if they're actually willing to make the necessary reforms to, to be part of, 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 of what they want to get. Uh, and this would actually go beyond the transactional approach, because the other problem with transactionalism is it's very easy to pocket the things that you like and discard the things that you don't. Uh, and I think with some of these measures on the customs union, uh, you're required to do some reforms in order to get some of the, the economic benefits that, that you want. Final piece of this is I think there's a need to continue engaging civil society. Uh, and I don't mean this in a broad sense of, of going in heavy with democracy promotion efforts, but like I said earlier, there is this 50-50 split within Turkey. And I think it is important that that percentage of, of Turkish civil society that wants to keep the government moving, the country moving in a democratic direction, knows that there is support and backing uh, for that from the United States, from, from the, the European Union. Uh, I think there's utility in people-to-people -people contact. I think there could be an expansion of exchange programs to be able to, to bring Turks from, from various backgrounds, uh, you know, entrepreneurs, um, youth, uh, parliamentarians, activists out of Turkey uh, to have the opportunity to, to interact with, with some of their Western counterparts. And related to that, I think the EU and the U.S. in particular need to be vocal about some of these concerns that we have with some of Turkey's domestic politics. Uh, it was something that I got criticized for when I was in government about the U.S. not being strong enough. So certainly when you're on the outside, I think you always believe that government should be much more vocal that they, that they tend to be. Uh, and it is a difficult balance between how much messaging you're going to do publicly, how much messaging you're going to uh, convey privately. I haven't had the impression that the Trump administration is, is particularly proactive on, on addressing rule of law and, and human rights concerns in, in other countries, uh, but it's, it's something that I think we, we need to be doing uh, a lot more of, uh, both in terms of staying true to our values and also because I think our, our comments on this I do matter to an extent and I think particularly resonate with, with civil society actors. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.